This podcast is produced in collaboration with the Sheikh Zayed Book Award. The Sheikh Zayed Book Award is one of the Arab world's most prestigious literary prizes, showcasing the stimulating and ambitious work of writers, translators, researchers, academics, and publishers advancing Arab literature and culture around the globe. Today's guest, Professor Muhsin Al-Musawi, was awarded the Sheikh Zayed Book Award in 2022 in the category of Arab culture in other languages for his book, The Arabian Nights in Contemporary World Cultures. Al-Musawi is a professor of classical and modern Arabic literature, comparative and cultural studies at Columbia University. He is the author of 39 books and the editor of the Journal of Arabic Literature. The Sheikh Zayed Book Award Translation Grant is open all year round with funding available for titles that have won or been shortlisted for an award in the children's literature and literature categories. Publishers outside the Arab world are eligible to apply. Find out more on the Sheikh Zayed Book Award website at zayedaward.ae. That's Z-A-Y-E-D-A-W-A-R-D dot A-E. Welcome to episode 91 of the Bulak podcast. It is our great pleasure to be joined today by Professor Mohsen El-Musawi, whose book, The Arabian Nights in Contemporary World Cultures, is the winner of a Sheikh Zayed Book Award 2022. Professor Mohsen El-Musawi is professor of classical and modern Arabic literature, comparative and cultural studies at Columbia University, a renowned scholar and literary critic, his teaching and research interests span several periods and genres. Professor Musawi is the author of 39 books, including six novels. His most recent is Arabic Disclosures, the Postcolonial Autobiographical Atlas, published by University of Notre Dame Press this year. He's written widely about the Knights, including the introduction and notes to the Barnes & Noble Classics edition, and his 2009 book, The Islamic Context of the Thousand and One Nights. In addition to the Sheikh Syed Book Award, which he won for his 2021 book, he has won many other prizes, including the 2002 OAS Award and the 2018 Kuwait Prize in Arabic Language and Literature. And I would just note that the Sheikh Syed Book Award judges said of the Arabian Nights and Contemporary World Cultures that the author's insightful readings are not limited to the presence of the Thousand and One Nights in traditional genres, but go beyond that to analyze its influences in music, paintings, visual arts, films of various kinds, and political and digital spaces. So welcome, Professor Al-Musawi. It's lovely to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Ursula. Thank you, Marcia. So I wanted to start out just by asking you about your personal history with the Knights, um, because you've written about it so extensively. Uh, if you remember when you first when you first heard about it, when you first read the Knights or were read the well, first of all, as you know, I mean, some of the tales used to come to us through our mother's talk, that is, when we were young. I mean, just one way of telling us a story, you know, and, and so on. And it is only at a later stage that we begin to remember that actually we heard something like that and, and so on. What was the interest? Uh, so what began early on, let us say, as merely storytelling, which is in family situations, 
or social gatherings or something like that. But at the same time, at a later stage, it came to you as a subject worth studying. Now, worth studying at that time, we need to remember that it was taken very lightly in among uh, Arabic literary scholars. So you find very little attention, despite the fact that, for instance, Taha Hussein supervised a dissertation by Suhair Qalamawi in the late 1930s and published 1941, uh, and uh, a general book about the Arabian Nights. But that was a rare occasion, certainly, and it came under the influence of others, that is to say French and the British in particular. So we have that kind of thing. Otherwise, the scene itself has been empty. That is to say, no interest, no academic interest in the Arabian Nights at all. Despite the fact that you find some people talking about a possibility here and there, but it was not as consistent interest, simply because they don't think of it as literature. So when I went out to study, I have been already making a name that is as a literary critic, mostly specializing in novel and poetry and so on. But I decided to continue my studies. And when I decided to continue my studies, early the first stage in my academic studies was not exactly this, but in the middle period, while preparing for a dissertation, I thought of a subject that can bridge the comparative and Arabic at the same time, and allowing Arabic also to join the main trains in world culture. And to do that, I thought of the Arabian Nights at that time, and in, in particular, how to see the responses of 18th and 19th century people in Europe, general speaking, especially writers, artists, uh, philosophers, to these tales. I did a lot of research around that time, all over. Wherever I find a place, I go. That has a good collection or something. And so I collected a lot of material that time. I wrote my dissertation, Shahrazad in England. It was published 1981 as uh, Shahrazad in England. Certainly, this was not the title of the dissertation, which is a little bit longer. Anyway, that is what happened so early on. And then nobody was still very much enthusiastic about that. Until late in the 80s, you find some people, their attention was drawn to the book. And they began to develop that kind of interest again. And the academy took over. And they began to uh, supervise, that is, some scholars, to supervise theses and, and so on. The kind of uh, interest itself in the Arabian Nights has been kind of growing in different manners, in different, depending on the time we are talking about. So if early on you can say that there is more attention to criticism, to the tales, to the translations themselves, and so on, at a later stage we know that appropriation is the mode of 
different periods. And that is to say, the tale itself will lose its own origin or its own technique and will develop or grow into another direction. Especially that is if you look at it from, from, uh, from the cinematic point of view, the perspective is different. They need something which is challenging, appealing to the reader. And for that matter, as they did with Shakespeare, they are also ready to do the same thing with Arabian Nights, which happened. I mean, the Hallmark uh, production, if you notice, a few other productions. Some people, though, especially for the theater, they thought, no, there is a possibility of going to an original and try to produce the Arabian Nights in a different manner, and they did. And uh, they did, and I was asked in a festival in Toronto at that time to uh, make a comment on that kind of production. It is a British production, certainly, and uh, but uh, it was a festival, and and uh, and uh, at that time for uh, he prepared that is uh, I think uh, Tim uh, prepared. Uh, two-session theatrical production at that time. Very good production, certainly, but I told him also in uh, in a seminar to have a comment on that kind of thing. I told him that there is only some exaggeration in some parts, and, and to search for something, a local color, can be troubling. It is not always the right way to approach a tale. I mean, because what you assume is a local color nowadays is not necessarily the one of old days. That will lead us to translation, as you know. And the whole issue of translation, I think you have uh, uh, that in mind, definitely. But uh, that is, so there is a fluctuation and ups and downs and if you look early on in architecture, for instance, you find, no, that is the application of the tale as it came to architect in, in any translation that architect in is reading. And it helped them to design, to make designs, architectural designs, according to what they read. And, and this is why you can say there is something proximity between between the two, between the two versions, okay? Mm. So I, I'm, you've been working on the, the Thousand and One Nights now for, for four decades, uh, starting with your, your PhD thesis until this most recent work. So how has your interest in it shifted over those, over that, you know, that huge span? Well, every, every, now, every now and then, you see, every now and then I write a different book, mm. right? So between these inter- intervals, I published, a book on poetry, I published two books or three books or four books on the novel and narrative in general and, and so many things. And I published a famous book, also a very popular book, uh, Slam on the Street, and, and so on. So while doing that, and I thought I left the Thousand and One mm-hmm. Nights behind or the Arabian Nights. However, I realized that actually, and despite the fact that very many people will tell me, isn't that enough? I mean, you have already 
exhausted the topic. It is not exhausted, I notice. And what drew my attention is that very many scholars are doing the following. Either they are not aware of earlier scholarship, that is in particular my own uh, scholarship, or or they are re, uh, kind of recycling the information in one way or another without mentioning sources. And that is troubling, as you know, for academic research. And so I thought, no, let me draw their attention to other issues which are more important. And at the same time, it can lead them to understand that, that the particulars or the regulations which govern the field that is the field. If you are interested in research and in the academy, then you can abide by the rules. And there are rules, as you know. And part of the rules is that you are going to do a very good research. It is not what you know. It is what is available of material that you should be aware of, and either you accept or criticize. That is the academy. And so I wrote uh, something, and then I came with the idea of the book that is the Islamic context of the Thousand and One Nights, Columbia University Press. Barnes and Noble contacted me early on, though, uh, when uh, just four years, I think, after I joined Columbia or something like that, after five years or six years. And they would like me to prepare an edition for them. Preparing an edition, I told them, is impossible. I mean, because the available translations or retranslations are many. Most of them are very large and huge and very many volumes. And the fact that there is only uh, one significant manuscript which we have, which is Galant's. That's all we have. We don't have other manuscripts. Whatever that came later, it came by the end of the 18th century. So there is something here of a problem. And I told them I can edit though, and I can at the same time uh, write uh, a very detailed introduction and then the, and whatever glossary and so on, which I did. Very popular, certainly. You expect that Barnes & Noble will sell millions of these, uh, of, of these books, uh, which happened. And then I thought, after the Islamic context of the Thousand and One Nights, that it is time to go and see the Arabian Nights globally. That is how it is working right now. Right now, I mean, the last two decades, let us say, when the cyberspace is a fact, as long, uh, along with very many other facts on the ground. So I thought this is a challenge, an important challenge, which should lead us to understand the, the phenomenal rise of the Arabian Nights differently for a different age. And this is why the engagement with that project, as you know, the uh, uh, Arabian Nights in, world con uh, in contemporary world cultures, because it deals with kind of uh, translation, it deals with the uh, with the commoditization and, and so on. 
and that is the global context. So I took it and began to study it within that phenomenal rise of a different economy and a different polity. Yes, I mean, certainly one of the many things that your book does is map out, like you say, this immense field of knowledge around the Arabian Nights that has been growing. And then this also phenomenal reach and influence that it's had on so many writers. So perhaps it was not the focus of of academic uh, interest or criticism from the beginning, but certainly it seems to have permeated the world of literature and letters early on. And the list of major world writers who um, took an inspiration from the Knights in one way or another is just is just endless. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about w- what it is that seems to have drawn writers so much to this text and, and perhaps particularly to the frame story and the figure of Shahrazad and this idea of storytelling against time and against death. And I, I mean, first of all, this is certainly the, uh, you can say that in the, in the 20th century, and with that fear, which the insecurity of writers and artists, general, general speaking, that they are in danger of losing the creative impulse. You know, I mean, if you watch the academy itself, you find that 90% of the people working in the academy that is in the humanities, generally speaking, will stop at one, two articles, one, two books, and that is the end of the career, and and so on. The passion itself can die, and that is the same fear which captures the minds of very many artists and writers. Mm. They are afraid of losing that kind of ability to continue writing and to continue that process of creation. This is applicable to poets, to novelists, as I told you, to painters, to everybody. And that is the fear. This is why the appeal of the frame tale. And the frame tale, because how to stay, how actually to buy life, okay? This is the whole idea and narrative and Tedorov makes a very good suggestion that is as long as you talk, this is a narrative, and that is you are alive. And for that matter, certainly, this is an occupation for a large number of writers. But let me compare it to 18th and 19th century response. Yes. There was, there was no fear of that kind of loss. You, you, you might raise the question and you say, well, no, John Keats, for instance, in his poetry, the British romanticist, mm-hmm. he has a fear and he was interested in the Arabian Nights. He appropriated two, three stories from the Arabian Nights, like very many others, certainly more than the rest and so on. So, but the fear, he put it as a fear of losing the beloved. So the women he has in mind, or just creation, simply a figment of his imagination. The same thing, actually. So the woman here is very much like what Ibn Arabi is telling us. 
is the creative impulse, the creative feminine, as uh, Corbin said in his translation of Ibn Arabi, for instance, and, and so on. So you can tell even when it is not exactly pointing to the fear of loss of the creative impulse, there is an analogy working within the mind that will lead to the same thing. But they are equal. Whether we are talking about the creative impulse or the women or the uh, opposite direction and, and, and so on. It is the same idea. But in general, though, 19th century in particular is not very much enthusiastic about the frame tail. Can I can I ask you a question? Is, yeah. Was there something sort of, do you see that there was something missing from, say, English literature and French literature, that this this came and filled some kind of void, this 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 did something that, that elsewhere that authors hadn't been able to find? Uh, what, what caused, you know, what caused it to, to take on such a large space and to have, attract so many writers from, you know, so writing in such different genres? To, to find something in, in, in the nights? Well, it, it depends because we are talking about cultural and literary taste. And it is very rare to find that this is dissociated from the economy, for instance, or political mm. life and so on. So, for instance, with the, with the rise of capital, generally speaking, in Europe, and and the fluctuation and 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 and, and, uh, and uh, the precarious kind of situation, and so far as people's living is concerned, is there as a fact. And the Arabian Nights is talking about and addressing such issues which are important. So you can be rich, and this is for the stock market, which has been growing in Europe around that time. And and uh, this is uh, very much it, it. It responds that is the tales in the Arabian Nights response to a fact that is you can win today and be quite rich, and you can lose the next day. And Arabian Nights is about also very many tales. This vicissitudes of fortune, the ups and the downs in your in, in uh, individual lives. So we are talking about about how the each century will approach or each period will approach that kind of reading. You find a lot of that, by the way, in Charles Dickens. That is the attention to these fluctuations and the and and uh, and these changes and the transformations and in fortune, general speaking. Certainly, he has in mind his own father's case, and so, on. and so on. So, with the does this uh, going uh, going to disappear? No, nothing will disappear. But what I am saying, there is something which is more conspicuous at a certain moment than another. So, we are talking about many trends and and uh, eddies and that kind of movement. That is between a current, a strong current, and uh, something which is a little bit less, and so on. So there is always that kind of movement in literature that uh, something will rise, something will disappear. It is applicable, certainly, 
to to uh, very many uh, fluctuations in literary genres, general speaking. So you find an interest, for instance, in the lyric, and then you find no more interest in something else, like a long poem, and and so on. The same thing with the music. The societies usually change and undergo serious challenges, and these will reflect in their reading. And the reading would be more appealing for one reason or another. When it comes to a later period, you find that the writer becomes really more insecure than usual. And this is why you find the attention to the frame story. That is, all of them will be talking, whether we are talking about poetry, whether we are talking about uh, novels. So when you go to Michel Poutor, to this, to that, uh, all of them will, in one way or another, respond to the frame story. Well, is this a new, totally new? No, I'm not saying that this is totally new, because we know that Edgar Allan Poe, early on, right, in the 19th century, would be talking about only the frame story. Right, but it became the main preoccupation at a certain point, or or a sort of noticeable. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but I mean, but that is the, the what we notice in the twentieth century onward. That is the frame tale. The frame tale, they didn't use it properly because they start with Shahrazad and her dilemma and the storytelling. You see, so they shifted the attention from. The preliminary scene, preliminary scene, which is very important, certainly, that is, why do these kings become so morose and so morbid? They became so because allegedly they found their wives doing the following. Okay, there is a garden scene and there is a bedroom scene. And we are starting from these scenes and Certainly, this is why, I mean, according to the tale or to the historian or to the narrator, this is why both kings decide not to marry. And this is why they want the Shahrayar is going to kill a, a wife every night, you know, and, and so on. And this is how to save off death and uh, that is how it goes. So we cannot ignore, and it has been ignored, by the way, the first preliminary scene, which is very important because these two queens are not given a voice. They were not, we don't know what is the problem. The problem could touch on the issue of uh, the masculine voice. That is to say, it could touch on on uh, virility of the two kings. And as you know, for the monarchy, this is a major issue for them, how to survive. And that, that kind of uh, genealogy, the monarchic, which they want. So that bothers them. And so they are not given a voice to tell us exactly what is the situation and why. And for that matter, this scene, as I did, should be re-explored, which, uh, if you notice, I called it the missing link. And it is a missing link, so I brought it back to the attention of scholarship because we cannot continue talking about something and neglecting the voiceless and how to give voice to the voiceless 
And that is what I tried also to do in the process. So while I have been responding to whatever has been applied for the theater or the cinema or architecture or music and painting, while I'm doing that, at the same time, I have been also doing the correction to the kind of reading and understanding, simply because the purpose of my drive altogether, whether in this book or in every other book, is how to place Arabic literature in the main trends. In the main trend, that is to say, people will not speak about it as an oddity, as something which is different, as something eccentric, uh, you know, and as something which is strange. This, this, what I try to do, no, is how to make the reader feel that he is reading this as much as he is reading Faulkner, or reading Gates, or reading T.S. Eliot, or reading Putor, or reading, and, and so on. So we are talking about these kind of serious issues in culture, generally speaking. It is not merely a survey of who is and whatever and impacts and influence. No, no. This is, as you know, my mind works a little bit differently from all these people, simply because of this massive reading, which I have been doing throughout my life, and, and the gathered information, which, I mean, I can write, for years and years, and it will not be yeah, done. I can imagine. I, I mean, to this point that you just raised and that's raised in the book, so w- one of the other ways in which the the Knights is perhaps framed, misframed, uh, perhaps mistranslated, misinterpreted, is when it's viewed more as an exotic element and in the context, in the political context of colonialism and of, of empire. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and also about what it means to you to decolonize the Knights. Yeah, decolonizing certainly um, once I, uh, last year actually, I gave, or let us say last, yeah, early spring that is, I gave a course on decolonizing the Arabian Nights. What I meant by that is twofold. One of them is narratology. That is to say, how is it possible to go from where theorists of narrative stopped? And they stopped, certainly, without taking the Knights into consideration, despite the fact that we are talking about a massive amount of material which was written about the Arabian Nights in Europe, in particular. In particular, I'm not talking about the South, for instance, because there is less because of the issues of print and so on and so on. But in Europe in particular, England, France, Germany, and so on, there is a lot of material which was written over two centuries or three centuries. That is something. That is something uh, which we need to understand why then it is neglected. It is neglected for a number of reasons, simply because 
most of these theorists have no access or they have no knowledge of other cultures or they are intimidated by other cultures and, and so on. And they didn't do the proper work that is of searching for how, what is the narrative, what is the meaning of narrative in the first place. And, and, and they didn't take what Todorov suggested. Certainly, Todorov made a very, very good suggestion, although he was emphasizing only the fantastic, for instance, and his attention was drawn to the Arabian Nights and to the wonderful in the Arabian Nights and, and so on. But, but uh, they sh- could have made a start with that kind of analysis in order to develop a narratology on different grounds. And as such, it, will, it won't be a very dull topic. They made it dull. The literary theorists. So, so what you're saying is, despite having inspired a huge amount of literature and a huge amount of study, it doesn't, the, the Thousand One Nights doesn't have its place within the field of literary theory. Exactly. I mean, there is an, uh, there is an, uh, very surprise. As you know, I mean, the problem which we associate with the classicism, that is to say people who are interested only in the elite kind of writing, that is the high uh, classical kind of prose, the same thing has been running into the theory of fiction. They try to avoid what is what else. So they go to the main point, uh, I mean, names, which they have, that is, and they reference and they conclude accordingly, according to what they read. And that is a problem. You don't find these narratologists growing actually within the field of comparative literature. They are growing mostly within the field of specific English or French literature. And for that matter, they made very little progress, very little progress, unfortunately. What I am trying to do is to bring this to narratology, to tell them that these are the open horizons for narratology in order to grow and at the same time to have the right engagement with right, with the, with readers and to make it a topic which is enjoyable. Uh, this is, we are talking about theories of art, theories for the cinema, theories for painting. Every phenomenal part of art and literature should have a narrative voice in it. And by that way, it can survive. Otherwise, it will be a static production which cannot grow or cannot appeal to the reader or to the, uh, to the audience and the spectator in particular. So we are talking about this. And this is why, first of all, how to release the Arabian Nights from the binding, which is imposed on it simply because these people cannot understand what's going on. The other thing which I try to do is, no, to go back to translation itself as an issue and to try to deal with it and to, to suggest the other side of the coin, that is to say, how is it possible for us to understand that translation is as it is simply because it belongs to a certain period in history 
which the writer or the translator is informed by. And the writer or, or, uh, or the painter is informed by that specific society, specific taste at that time, at a certain moment. And the translation as such carries within it the age, the spirit of its own period. And Galan, the first translator of the Arabian Nights, certainly, is not hiding that. He's telling you that I tried my best to do the following. One, two, three. And just opposite what people are saying against him. He's not as bad as very many late translators. Actually, he did his best to make this a commodity, to prepare it for the early French, early 18th century, French audience, and to the court in particular, and to the people associated with the high class. That's what he did. And for that matter, what he called finesse and so on, and delicacy, has been prepared in one way or another in the edition which he gave to these people. That is what it is. So I have a question. Uh, so when, when you talk about decolonization of the Knights, you're talking mainly about um, its its uh, its place in literary criticism, as well as translation issues around it. I'm, I'm also curious about, you know, aspects like, you know, the film version of Aladdin, which is, of course, um, uh, you know, a story Hannah Dieb gave to Galand and not really part of the Knights, but the, you know, the sort of um, appropriation aspects and the, and the inter- you know, the adaptations that are, that are, hap- artistic adaptations that are happening now. What, what ramifications does decol- decolonization of the Knights have for those? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly my idea is that, for instance, in order to go back, and to claim the Arabian Nights, we are doing a few things, right? One of them is to go to the manuscript tradition itself and try to resurrect a text from this kind of tradition and try then to speak about, about a faithful production of an edition, which is simply impossible in the present situation. What we have is the manuscript. And we know that the manuscript is incomplete, right? And mm-hmm. whatever else, people will try to comply with the fact that there are thousand and whatever tales, and they try to make them thousand. This is why they began collecting as many tales as possible. If it is not available in a manuscript, then you bring somebody to tell you the story, and you write it down. This is what happened with Hanadiyah. And, uh, and Galant, for instance, and so on. But what is applicable to that kind of process, you see there is a manuscript which is written, and there is a narrator who is bringing to you some of the tales which he or she have heard somewhere else and in their lands, and they are bringing to you. How, uh, how authentic, for instance, are these? That is a question uh, for us between because it will lead us to the whole issue of orality and literacy and so on. But definitely storytelling has been going on for a long time in these lands, that is, that is uh, the, uh, whether we are talking about 
Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and so on, and later on the uh, Morocco. Whether we are talking about this, there are there is a storytelling a tradition, and this storytelling a tradition is yes, you can say it is almost dying, but it survives in one way or another simply because it is not dying, but it is replaced by other means. And the other means are, as we know them, we have the visual and the audio and whatever. All these are means in order to bring a different tradition and definitely to impact any kind of tradition. What is happening, though, as I told you, so is the oral tradition, that is whether we are mentioning Hanadiyah, is alien to, no it is not alien this is part of the deal you see we should not be misled by these kind of suggestions that this is well merely fabricated or a forgery or thievery no it is not it is orality which has been going on especially in so far as storytelling is concerned so it is not merely the manuscript tradition in this case, which is important, the storytelling. The storytelling, when we are told by Edward William Lane, for instance, and many others certainly, like, like Russell, for instance, when he spent some time in Alipom, uh, he will tell us that he listened to some of the stories by people and so on. What I am saying is there are two parallel kind of movements. One of them is the written and the other one is the oral. They complement each other and to bring them together is important for us to understand. And this is why by decolonizing you are kind of resurrecting the, not only the manuscript but also the oral tradition itself in order to bring to your reader something unmediated. That is to say something which can be appealing. Now, can we really do that? No, we cannot. I mean, despite the fact that I call for that, but at the same time, we know that a translation belongs to its age. Ma meaning what? Meaning every age has a problem. Every age has a taste. Every age has an, inclin uh, an, an inclination. And the translator is very much part of a market and in order to make his edition for instance appealing to the market that is what he is going to do that is how to prepare it in one way or another so he can mess with what the material which he for instance has but uh, and he can provide us with whatever we have and we have a lot as you know very many people especially in the uh, first half of the 19th century, many people uh, tried to reproduce or to bring or to claim originality and authenticity of the Arabian Nights and so on. Uh, can we uh, kind of put these aside, all the translations? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting an awareness that we need to understand that each translation has its own age, has its own taste. It is not, there is no such thing as more authentic than the other. Because even if you go to Richard Burton, 
هو collect هو did collect actually a massive amount of material whether he is using John Payne's addition and improving or changing it or whatever according to an arrangement between the two or he has been hearing stories and put, putting them in English all the material which he gathered is not necessarily a fabrication or a forgery but it is also a departure from the Arabian Nights uh, it is a departure in the sense that it tries to include everything that is made available to the traveler and the translator and the uh, iconic figure in the empire itself around that time. So we have all these. And as I said, what is needed usually for us while we are going into the process of decolonization is to see a number of things at the same time. One of them, is how to liberate the Arabian Nights and put it in context of the main narratological trends that is to be part of the discussion of the art of narrative and the theory of narrative itself. Second, and we use as evidence that a large number of writers have been leaning on that, starting with Forster, who's tried to show that actually what the Arabian Nights is doing is how to buy your life by narrative, and so on. So, and very many others certainly early in the 20th century are doing the same thing. So we can bring it, I mean, in this, in his aspects of the novel, I'm suggesting that. So they should have built on that, and they should have tried their hand in reading very carefully, and at the same time with understanding what is missing in their readings. The other thing is that how is it possible for us to liberate the text which we have as a translations? We should first of all believe that the translations and the translators accuse each other and what Borges uh, elegantly and beautifully actually coined as a phrase, that is there is hostility. I mean, it is a dynasty of hostilities. That is to say, so everybody, in order to make a place for himself, he should displace the other. And as such, accusing the predecessor of something wrong. And that is that has been going on among the translation. Now, where should we as readers or as scholars stand in, in, in this kind of uh, bargaining? What we can do, as I suggested, first of all, is to create an awareness that these are appropriations done at a certain time in order to make an appeal and to make some money in that kind of transaction. That is one point. So there is no such thing as authenticity. What do, what do we say then to the late, I mean, 21st century efforts to kind of collate a number of additions and create a new one. The same thing, the same process. It is an effort in order to bring to the attention of the audience something, a new product, which claims that it tries its best to accommodate everything and to make it saleable. We are talking certainly of a new merchandise 
which is fitting for the spirit of globalization, for the spirit of a new age, a different age. That is what we are reading. Awareness in this case is a decolonizing strategy. It is very important, certainly, to uh, survive as a strategy as long as our reader knows that we are not talking about one specific text as necessarily very authentic and, and so on. The issue of originality and imitation should be put aside because the Arabian Nights is a protein in the sense that it is changeable according to one's reading. And by the core is a core. That is to say, there is a spirit of the Arabian Nights which has been surviving for a long time and it is not going to die. And even the hands of translators cannot mess with that. This is they can do with the details, yes, but not with the structure or the normative part, pattern which has been running, uh, which has been running throughout these narratives. Absolutely, it's one of the things that I think is so appealing um, about this work is the impossibility of sort of laying one's hands on a definitive version and the way that it has traveled and it has morphed and that it keeps um, sort of uh, slipping through your fingers at, even as it keeps, as you say, charming readers. Um, well, and I, I want to thank you, uh, Professor Musawi, for sharing uh, your insights and your expertise um, on this incredibly rich work um, this has been a, a great conversation, and uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Um, that's all for today. We will be back in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.